Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the joy of reconnecting with Dr. Eric Balkavage. He's the owner and founder of Rejuvagen, a functional medicine clinic in Pennsylvania. He's also a recognized speaker and educator on various health topics, including thyroid physiology, detoxification, methylation, and chronic illness. Today, he joins me for the third time to discuss his new book, The Thyroid Debacle, co-authored with Dr. Kelly Halderman. Today, we dove deep into his impetus for writing this book right now, the role of cellular hypothyroidism, triggers for this, and the net impact of chronic low-grade inflammation on the health of our mitochondria, why hypothyroidism is a spectrum, the role of bile specific to thyroid functioning, the impact on our sex hormones, the incidence of Hashimoto's and why iodine is so controversial, labs that we want to look at more closely with thyroid health issues, the role of supplements and nutrition. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Welcome back, Dr. Eric. It's good to have you back on the podcast. And for listeners, this is our third podcast together on Everyday Wellness. You can check into episodes 105 and 166. And today we're going to talk about your new book and dive into different aspects of thyroid physiology in a way that is very unique. And I'm very grateful to have you back because it's always an interesting and entertaining conversation with you. Well, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. I'm proud to be the first of the three timers <laughs> for sure. Yes. I've got another one coming up next week. So it's definitely, so, you know, the podcast has been around long enough that now that can happen. So it's such a, a cool opportunity. So thank you for listeners for uh, keeping the momentum going with the podcast. It uh, It is definitely been a wild ride. Yeah, I think it's great that it says something when you're having people on for multiple times, right? Because yes. you've, you're, you've been there long enough. So congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you. Lots of alignment. So let's start the conversation today talking about why we are failing our patients with regard to thyroid management, diagnosis, et cetera, because there seems to be this very linear and reductionistic thought process about the thyroid. And I was guilty of this. I want to be very transparent and say that in my traditional allopathic training, and even the way that I practiced as an NP in cardiology, we didn't really deal with a lot of thyroid issues. We would send them back to their primaries, or we would just rule out the really serious things in the hospital, like thyroid storm or myxedema coma. And beyond that, we had other specialists dealing with the thyroid. But even I didn't fully understand and appreciate the complexity of our thyroid. And I can see why we are failing our patients because I've been one of those patients. I know we had a sidebar conversation, I believe last year when I was like, doesn't matter who you're seeing. Sometimes we really do fail our patients and it's because the thyroid is so complex. Yeah, I I think I try and be softer on how I say this stuff now, but I think the key is that I don't really, I think people are doing almost often what we're trained to do, right? And everybody's, I think, in, has the patient's best interest at heart. We want to help our clients. We want to help our patients. And we do that based on 
our bias. We do that based on our knowledge base. We do it based on, you know, our ignorance, right? However you want to say it, we have a certain way that we think that we're helping our clients. And when you look around and everybody else is doing the same thing, then we, th- whether we're having success or failure, we just assume that I'm doing it right, right? Because that's what my peers do and that's what everybody else is doing. And so I don't want to beat up on anybody else saying, see, I think I'm right and you're wrong. I think it's more of at some point in time, we, the clients, we, the physicians get frustrated and start to ask better questions, right? Kind of go against the grain. It's probably why you're not doing, you know, what you were doing before and you're doing something else because you kind of hit your wall, you know, going in and saying, hey, this doesn't seem right. And for me, I think this happened in when we started thinking about thyroid physiology, but physiology in general is that we're always looking at what's going on, like somebody's broken and we need to fix something. And all I really want to do, and the whole purpose of the book, whether I got that point across or not, was just to stop looking at ourselves as if we're broken and just ask a better question, which is, maybe this isn't broken physiology. Maybe this is adaptive physiology. Maybe my body isn't trying to kill me. Maybe my body and my physiology is really trying to help me protect me and and adapt to whatever that environmental or life stress, whatever that stress load is. So it's not broken, at least at the onset. And if we ask a better question, then oftentimes I think we're less frustrated because I just got off the call doing a discovery calls over lunch. And the person's like, I'm very sensitive to these things, right? And they're telling them like, you're not really sensitive to B6. What you're asking, you're thinking that you're in heal mode. And if I give something, it's going to help me heal. Your body's in self-defense mode and it's using that, whatever that is to more support defensive mechanisms. But when we start to look at it that way, I think it really changes what we do and how we do it when we start to say, oh, not broken adapting. I just want us to change the conversation. I think it's such an important distinction. And, and by no means am I ever being critical of our allopathic trained peers I have benefited from emergent, urgent care medicine. I do, however, take great care in how I phrase how we manage preventative and chronic disease management, which I think deserves a different lens. And so what you're really begging people to do is to have a different, unique perspective, to think beyond what we were originally trained in, potentially to understand that we are designed to be lifelong learners, even as clinicians. And to look at things a little bit differently. I mean, I certainly have learned so much from you. And, you know, if you don't already listen to Dr. Eric's Thyroid Thursday, it's a treat. You are getting this incredible teaching opportunity as well as his podcast. And, you know, there are so many women, which are the bulk of my listeners, that are impacted by thyroid issues that that explains why you're such a popular guest because people want to learn more. They want to learn more so they can talk to their healthcare providers so they themselves better understand their thyroid. Now, let's unpack cellular hypothyroidism because this is unique. It's, as you stated in the book, it's occurring at epidemic proportions. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about why it happens, reasons for why it happens, what triggers it, you know, as you were kind of alluding to at the beginning of our conversation, because I think this is an important type of an underactive thyroid 
And we're talking about cells. So cellular level hypothyroidism, why this is unique and how it impacts us. Yeah. So cells are like people, right? We operate from one of two modes. I try and keep it super simple. We're either in low stress manufacturing mode, right? Or we're in high stress cell defense mode. And we operate differently, whether if it's just us in our home, right? If we're in crisis mode, we're not busy cooking and cleaning and doing all that stuff. We're trying to you know, protect the house or put out the fire or whatever it is. So cells are a similar way, right? So if they're in a, if you're in a low stress state, the body wants a higher state of metabolism and it needs to bring food energy into the system, convert that inside your cells and tissues into cellular energy so it can make the proteins, it can make the peptides, it can make the hormones, it can make the neurotransmitters, it can make cell membranes. It can do all this stuff, hair, skin, all the stuff that makes us feel good, move our bowels, right? Have feel good, have great libido and orgasms and all that other kind of good stuff, right? So that's the what happens when we're in low stress manufacturing mode. The other mode is, oh crap mode, like something's threatening, something's in danger. In that mode, we want to kind of slow the metabolism down to these manufacturing processes because I don't need to put a lot of time and energy towards that. What I need to do is put more time and energy to making inflammatory products, things that are going to be protective, ramping up the immune system, creating inflammatory molecules to go kill something, increasing oxidative stress. And unfortunately, when we're in that cell defense mechanism, most of the, the effect of that doesn't make us feel good, right? And so we make the assumption that we're sick, right? And the reality is we're ill, but we're actually probably healthy if we have the fever, if we're nauseous, if we have diarrhea, that's our body trying to get rid of whatever is there. But we make this kind of misassumption as to what's going on. So the thermostat to turn determining whether we're going to be in manufacturing mode or cell defense mode, one of the things we use to regulate that is how much thyroid hormones in the system, how much of this active hormone T3 is in the, inside the cell. Because the, if you have more T3 in the cell, that turns on the manufacturing process and kind of turns off the cell defense mechanisms. But if I want to turn on the cell defense and turn down manufacturing, I need less T3. And so what I call tissue hypothyroidism or cellular hypothyroidism is the body's adaptive downregulation, decreased conversion of T4 to T3, the down reduced amount of T3 inside the cell, which allows for this immune inflammatory process to kick on, but also turns down these other things that we really want to have. And the big problem is, is that we don't have a great set of tools to really in traditional allopathic medicine to look at it and say, oh, that's what's going on. But it happens a lot. And it probably is happening way more than we even consider, but I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit more as to the things that we can look at and say that's going on. But this is for the person who says, I'm tired, I'm fatigued, I have no libido, I'm constipated, my hair's thinning, my skin's dry. I think I've got a thyroid problem, or I think I've got adrenal fatigue, or I think I've got this, or their doctor says you have insulin resistance or you're putting on weight, even though you're exercising like crazy and barely eating, that's, you're probably already in that cell danger state and the state of that tissue or cellular hypothyroidism. And this is, this occurs long before oftentimes there's thyroiditis or inflammation of the gland or long before there's actually a diagnosis of hypothyroidism. So I think the question, the other question in that multi-question question was what causes it? And usually there's not one thing. Like sometimes that's the sexy thing that we, you know, everybody likes to do is say, oh, Epstein-Barr, or it's mold, or it's this, or it's that. 
it usually isn't one thing. It's usually a combination of stress over time that's unrelenting. And we just, we exceed our capacity. We all have a capacity to manage stuff, whether it's lifting a weight, whether it's dealing with our kids, our spouse, you know, a poor diet, whatever. We have a certain level, a tolerance level. And so many of us just keep compiling and compiling stressors, physical, chemical, emotional, environmental, organisms, toxins. And eventually the body says enough already. I'm shutting down manufacturing and I'm ramping up cell defense. Just like if there was a, f- a fire in your factory that made phones, right? I wouldn't keep making phones. I would turn down, stop the manufacturing process and I'd get the, everybody to put out the fire. I think it's such an important conversation to have because on a lot of different levels, we want to blame one thing when what you're really referring to is it's multifactorial. There are many things contributing and my niche are middle-aged women and we know we are less stress, stress resilient as we are transitioning into perimenopause, the five to 10 years preceding menopause. And this is an important distinction. What you can get away with in your 20s and 30s, you start becoming less stress resilient. This doesn't mean we are incapable. We are just stress less stress resilient. And this is a combination of loss of progesterone, additional stress on the adrenal glands, trying to effectively pick up the slack for this failing kind of ovarian reserve and understanding that women after 40 are at greater risk for developing autoimmune issues. And we know that 90 to 95% of women that develop something called Hashimoto's thyroiditis are women north of 40. And Mm -hmm. so it's under, I think many of us say, oh, it's the Hashimoto's. Well, actually it's this domino effect. It can be, as you mentioned, you know, gut microbe issues, um, physical stressors, chemical stressors, toxins, radiation, um, hypoxia, which is a decreased oxygen state that then provoke the domino that starts. And so you may not realize that you're in this cellular hypothyroidism initially, but it may be two or three years down the road when all of those symptoms you alluded to really are magnified that people say, okay, something's not right. So it's not as if the transition happens exponentially. It's that it's this domino effect. It's the amount, it's chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction that mitigates the spectrum, as you refer to it, the spectrum of hypothyroidism. And I've never actually heard that described that way, but it makes complete sense. Yeah. I think one of the things we got to be careful is because people will go, well, I have this, this is I have all this going on because of the Hashimoto's. I'm like, no, the Hashimoto's is the mm-hmm. result of a bunch of stressors, right? This Hashimoto's is the outcome. Everybody still, even in functional medicine, we still blame the disorder as the problem. Well, the reason you have this is because you have Hashimoto's. Okay, well, why do I have Hashimoto's? Oh, it's an autoimmune condition. It's your body just lost, the immune system just lost control. Really? Really? This thing that can take two individual little cells, put them together and get this, right? somehow one day wakes up and just forgets this is who I am and starts attacking me. I think that's too simplistic of an answer. It's the same answer when somebody says, oh, the reason you're overweight is because you're overweight, right? Or if you want to get healthy, lose weight. Well, the reason I have weight is because I was unhealthy first. I didn't get overweight and then really became unhealthy. I got unhealthy, which caused me to store calories versus burn calories. And so I think we just sometimes look at it 
from the wrong perspective. And I think we're both on the same page here. We just kind of kind of change the conversation. Nobody's right, nobody's wrong. But if we change the conversation to I'm broken, to I'm adapting, man, that's a much more promising thing to tell the client, right? Hey, why can't I lose weight? Well, your body's trying to protect you for something. It's saying that I'm in danger mode, I'm storing calories, I'm not burning them. Oh, you mean it's not necessarily calories in, calories out specific? No, 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 no. And matter of fact, if you overly restrict calories and you're maybe even in a bigger state of problems. So I think it's helpful just to, to change that conversation and start to consider that what we see in clients is not broken, it's adaptive. And then we can just start looking at what's doing it. And the analogy I've probably used on your podcast a couple of times to help people out is just to imagine like two cinder blocks with the board going across it. And all these things we come in contact with in life are like five pound weights or 10 pound weights. And we just, as we go through life, we just start adding those weights to that board. And the board maybe has a capacity of a hundred pounds. And if I overload that board at any stage of life, the board's going to break, right? But if I load the board with stress, with a five pound weight or a 50 pound weight. And then at some point I take 10 pounds off and I put five pounds back on and I take 15 off. I can still take all this stress, but I'm still able to adapt to it. For most people, what happens is they keep putting, they keep adding stress, not allowing for rest, recovery and regeneration. They don't become more resilient. They become more broken down. And eventually that board breaks. And now nothing seems to work appropriate, right? And they try a strategy and it doesn't work anymore. Like I tried to take the weight off. Well, the board is already broken. Taking it off that broken board doesn't fix the broken board. And so that's why that simple solution that worked for your friend may not work for you. If their board wasn't broken, they just reduce the stress. Oh, I feel so much more calm. That's great. But if the board's already broken, you actually have to reduce a lot of the stress, pick up the board, rebuild it, rehab it, and then you can become more resilient in time. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi-Optimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? 
If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. I think you really bring up a good point that it is never just one thing that breaks that board and understanding that we, and I'm going to borrow a phrase that Ben Azadi uses, we get healthy to lose weight. It's an important distinction. I think for so many of us, we've been conditioned to believe that weight loss should be effortless and weight loss is far more complicated than counting calories and just fasting and just trying to do five minutes of meditation once a week. Once we have hit that domino effect and our bodies are perceiving there's danger and they're stressed, it is going to make it much more challenging. It's not impossible. And that reframe is important. It, may, it takes time. It's like we don't become unhealthy overnight. We, I don't expect anyone to get quote unquote healthy overnight. It's a process. It's a journey. It's a marathon in some instances, but you can absolutely get there. Now, one thing I really liked in your book was you were talking about the net impact of thyroid health on, for example, our GI tract. And I think for a lot of people, they just kind of equate hypothyroidism with constipation. And they think that's the one thing that the thyroid does in terms of the gastrointestinal tract. And I think you do a really amazing job talking about, you know, our saliva and hydrochloric acid and digestive enzymes and motility and integrity. But what I really want you to talk about is bile. I think people don't even understand the importance of bile. And yet I find bile and the net impact of healthy bile hopefully still having a gallbladder. And if you don't, we can talk separately about that. But I think bile is a fascinating bodily fluid, if you will. And I think it would be really helpful for people to understand what bile does beyond just break down and emulsify fat. Yeah. So bile is this stuff, right? That's made by the liver. Doesn't get much attention unless your gallbladder is ready to explode, but it's critical to maintain the health 
of the GI tract, controlling the biome, maintaining the integrity of the, what we call the tight junctions. And I think it's a thing that you kind of mentioned that doesn't get much love and attention. And I think I stumbled across bile as something I think I needed to take a deeper dive into when I started getting a lot of clients coming from functional medicine clinics with their third or fourth or fifth SIBO practitioner. And like, I've had SIBO 25 times, right? And you're like, okay, something's wrong here. And when I'd look at their health history, I wouldn't see much in that was done from a biophysiology standpoint. So I, I wound up taking a deep dive, you know, to, to some people that's like, oh, what a, you know, what a geek, right? But I took a deep dive into biophysiology and actually Kelly Halderman and I wound up doing a three-day seminar on biophysiology. No That's way. how I roped her into helping me do the book <laughs> because she was going to do bio weekend seminar. And she's like, I need some help for you to do this. And I'm like, listen, I'll help you with the conference, but then you can come in and just help me work on the book. Cause I needed somebody like to be the push to kind of get this thing to move. But wow, so important. So your liver brings cholesterol into the liver and converts this stuff to a couple of different processes into this stuff we call bile. It's highly, it's made of a ton of water. So if your person doesn't hydrate well, or you're losing a lot of hydration through peeing out a lot of stuff, that can create a challenge. But the bile moves from the liver, it gets dumped into this tube and goes into this thing called your gallbladder. And in there, this bile, which is almost like soap, gets concentrated to be a more concentrated soap so it can do a better job. And then when you eat, this bile has the cholesterol, it's got water, it's got some other things in it that are beneficial. Plus it's got a bunch of toxins in it that we're releasing into the GI tract. But bile gets released into this area of the GI tract called the duodenum, which right past, after your food comes out of your stomach, it comes into this smaller area. It's part of the small intestine and bile acid gets dumped in there. Pancreatic enzymes get dumped in there and these things start breaking down your food. Now, the importance of bile is that at the upper end of the GI tract, it's a direct antimicrobial. So the organisms that are coming from your food, the organisms that are coming from your oral cavity, if the stomach acid hasn't not killed some of these things, your bile is now working to kill and break down some of those things directly at the upper part of the small intestine. The bile is also then helping absorb fat-soluble molecules, fats, fats, as well as release some of those things. The bile, as it moves down the GI tract, gets reabsorbed by the small intestines and some to some degree and the large intestine. So you're bringing this stuff back in. And as it comes back in through the GI tract, it's actually helping to maintain something we call the tight junction. So in your intestinal lining, these are one cell stacked next to each other. It's only one cell thick. And there's the junctions in between the cells. And these junctions, we call them tight junctions, the bile acid helps maintain those tight junctions. So if you don't have healthy bile physiology, you may wind up with chronic, what we call leaky or increased permeability in the GI tract. And then as we move further down the GI tract, the bile acids are actually an indirect 
antimicrobial because it helps trigger the immune response to things in the GI tract. So if I have bile that's too thick, too viscous, congested, I'm going to have reduced a killing capacity or reduced ability to maintain a low bacterial concentration in my small bowel, something we call SIBO or CIFO or CMO, however you want to say it. I'm going to have a decreased absorption of fats and fat-soluble vitamins and nutrients. And I'm going to have potentially a chronic leaky gut, which then sets the stage for all kinds of immune inflammatory problems. I think it's really important for people to understand we, we the poor woeful gallbladder is not a sexy organ, but it's one that's really important. And in your clinical experience, when you're working with patients who've had their gall, so they've had a cholecystectomy, they've had their gallbladder removed. Now the bile just drips all day long. It's been my clinical experience that these are people that either suffer with chronic constipation or they have chronic diarrhea. I've had people who've literally, since they've had their gallbladder out, they're no longer getting attacks, but then they kind of take that symptom that they were having and it's been replaced with digestive distress, either to the point where they just don't go to the bathroom if it requires multiple interventions to get them to go, or they're dealing with chronic loose stools, diarrhea. And I'm sure for many people, they probably would not have borrowed. <laughs> they probably would not have ultimately agreed had they known that they would then be suffering from additional side effects for the rest of their lives. Has that been your clinical experience as well? Yeah. I mean, and it's a chronic issue. It's really bad in women. We can talk about why that might be in a second. Critically tied to, to key to having appropriate thyroid physiology in those tissues because to get cholesterol out of the bloodstream and into the liver, guess what you need? You need appropriate levels of T3 at the liver to make bile acids appropriately. You need appropriate levels of thyroid hormone. So anytime there's tissue hypothyroidism impacting those tissues, you're going to have reduced production. But cutting out the gallbladder may have to happen if it's diseased, but we still haven't addressed the issue, right? Which is why. And now we've got this tube that we and we're getting diluted bile. It's not as concentrated. It's not as effective as a cleaning agent, right? It's like buying a like a cheap dishwashing lotion, you know, detergent versus maybe the dawn, right? That you throw in there and gets rid of the grease right away. But it doesn't do as effective of a job. So it sets the stage when you take that gallbladder out for chronic GI issues and chronic dysbiosis because there's you potentially have too much bile acids constantly being in there. They're not really good at doing their job, but they're also getting in the way because too much bile acids in there can create some problems with you can have loose stools as well. So it can be have you can have chronic constipation because that function well. You can have loose stools because there's too much bile that's hitting into the lower part of the GI tract. But it's a big issue. And for women, I think one of the big ties to why it, it might be a problem, because I don't think women are ever told, I don't think anybody's ever told why. It's just like it gets diseased. But one of the most common things that I see, and I don't know about you, I mean, this is your wheelhouse too, which is is estrogen problems. And so when you have estrogen dominance, there's a for the pancreas to dump, pancreas releases digestive enzymes into a duct, into a tube. The gallbladder releases bile down a tube and those two tubes come together and there's a little sphincter muscle that is closed. So it's not always emptying into the GI tract and it opens up and that sphincter muscle is called the sphincter of Odi. And when you have too much estrogen in the system, it actually causes that valve to stay shut. And so now I can't open the valve. So if I've got too much estrogen in the system, now I get this tightening of the sphincter of Odi, and now I get bile that backs up, 
into, and I, now I can start to get more thick, more congested stone formation, get the tissue all inflamed and irritated. I also don't have pancreatic enzymes dumping out efficiently, leads to bacterial overgrowth. Bacteria can then get up into the small bowel, up and through the sphincter and into the GI tract, get up into the gallbladder. Many times they're finding they're opening up those gallstones in the gallbladder, finding there's bacteria in the center of them. So it's a huge issue. And so I understand why people take it out if it's diseased because, hey, maybe we're beyond the, the point of fixing it. But at that point, we that person now needs long-term support and we still have to address the underlying issue. Was it bacteria? Was it infection? Was it estrogen? Like what's the underlying issue here? And that should be what we're all about in functional medicine. I know allopathic medicine, that may be not their thing, but that should be what we're all about in functional medicine. Absolutely. And for anyone listening, you can be in a high estrogen state in your cycling years. You can be high estrogen in perimenopause, also menopause. And a lot of this has to do with, well, there's a lot of things that can impact this, but it also can be impacted by our exposure to estrogen mimicking chemicals and our environment, our personal care products, our food. We are even our clothing the more I learn, the more I feel like I should go live in a bubble in the middle of the world. But with that being said, one thing that I thought was really interesting is that high estrogen also hinders iodine in the thyroid gland. So there were a lot of questions about iodine, but it also impacts iodide in the thyroid gland. So there's multiple different ways that high estrogen can impact thyroid physiology as well as gastrointestinal physiology. Oh, absolutely. And so that's why... We can't just look at one little window and say, oh, you just do this. We have to take a broader approach on things and say, okay, if we have an estrogen dominance issue, we need to address it. And then let, we also need to say is what other systems could this be impacting so that we can kind of fine tune our strategy instead of hit being like a, a Pollock painting where we just throw stuff out it and hopefully we hit the right target. In this situation, we say, hey, all these symptoms, these symptoms are tied to inflammatory stuff. So we don't have to drill at all of those. We can really just focus on the thing that's triggering the inflammation. You've got estrogen dominance or you've got toxicity. We don't have to address all of this stuff. We really just need to focus here, like the middle of the spider web to have the biggest impact on it. And I think sometimes when we do a better analysis and we understand how all these things incorporate, we can really streamline our, our treatment strategies and be much more effective. Can we touch on goiters? We got a lot of questions about goiters. And I think there's a lot of misinformation in terms of whether they're pathologic, whether they're benign. Obviously, a lot of that's based on biopsies and things like that. But what is your kind of working hypothesis about the process or the physiology of when our thyroid gland will develop goiters? I think at the end of the day, I always look at it, there's some type of inflammatory process going on. Now, there's in the world of allopathic medicine and functional medicine to some degree. It's too much iodine on one end, too little iodine on the other end. And I think it's that's too black or white, right? That's like politics, right? It's either Republican or Democrat. When reality, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. And so I look at it as there's probably more of an inflammatory mechanism going on. And then I would go, I go back and ask the question, what's causing the immune system, these immune cells to come in here and create all this destruction and damage? Whether you somebody says I, they have Hashimoto's or not, that's a whole nother discussion. Now we can argue that or talk about that point. But I think at the end of the day, when I see, when I know somebody's got that coming going on, I want to make sure they're just, A, are you taking a bunch of iodine? Yes. Okay. Probably stop doing that, right? I've seen people good take a bunch of iodine because they 
read it on a blog or listened to a podcast and then their neck is blown up like crazy and you're like, oof, why did you do that? But it makes sense what they're listening to. I can see how somebody would be influenced by it. But I would say if they're not on iodine, if they live somewhere on the coast, most of us get our fruit and vegetables and all our plants from the coast. We're not buying locally anymore. So it's less likely that we're in an overt iodine deficiency state. It's probably less likely that we're over, like it's excessive as some people think it's it's so excessive. I don't know if it's that. I think what makes the most sense to me when somebody's got a goiter, they've got a nodule, is there's a level of inflammation, the immune system is being attracted to the thyroid gland. And instead of just trying to treat that gland or do something for the gland, we take a step back and say, what else is going on in this person's life, diet, lifestyle that might be triggering this type of damage to the gland? And as we've talked about in the past, I think in many cases, it's not like the immune system just woke up and went after the thyroid gland. It's that the thyroid cells themselves are initiating that inflammation, that infiltration of the white blood cells. Because it's really interesting. You know, I've certainly have had experts on that talk about a lot of thyroid issues are mediated by too much iodine, too little iodine. I know many in the functional space are not in agreement about whether or not we need more or less. I think it leaves patients and clients confused about whether or not they should eat iodine-rich foods, that they should take supplementation. It's been my clinical experience. I always say less is more, you know, eat some sea kelp as opposed to taking more supplementation, unless you've been specifically told this is necessary. Do you find that urinary iodine testing is more accurate than serum blood testing? Has that been your clinical experience or do you hear the opposite? You know what? Early on, I did a lot of the testing to try and figure out what was accurate, what wasn't accurate. I think you can get readings, but I don't know if the testing is good enough and standardized enough that we can make a really good assessment high or low. In all the tests I've run, I've run a bunch that have been towards the lower end or low. I haven't run that many tests where people's values are overly high, what would be considered high. And so I just, in in reading a bunch of stuff, I'm just not convinced that that we have the best set of ways to measure it that I can hang my hat on it. So I'm much like you. There's the camp I grew up in, in functional medicine that says, if they have TPO antibodies, no iodine, right? Because TPO, iodine is going to increase TPO activity. It's going to create the issue. You need iodine, right? So you use iodine for so many purposes beyond the thyroid gland, just for immune health and everything else. So I think I'm probably more in line with you. A mild amount of iodine getting into the system is probably not the big issue. And because I don't believe that it's really as simple as I take iodine, TPO antibodies go up because the activity goes up and therefore I'm going to make more antibodies because what the literature seems to show is that the antibodies really don't do much damage. And so if it was just that the antibodies did all the damage, then I would say, hey, you shouldn't have any at all. But I forget, it's maybe a 2019 paper said the thyroglobulin antibodies, and I think they were pretty definitive on it, thyroglobulin antibodies caused no damage. And the TPO antibodies cause very little damage, if any. And so if that's the case, then taking iodine shouldn't really make a difference, right? Because that's not, it's not the antibodies like little Pac-Man eating away the gland. It is something else that's driving that process. So 
I don't really go one way or the other. I stopped doing a lot of that iodine testing. Even in the people that I see come to see me that have had a bunch of iodine testing done, I'm like, okay, did you take iodine? Yeah. And what did you do? Did you feel better? No, I didn't feel any better. I didn't feel any different. Okay. Then let's move on. Right. But I think for the most part, it's like the shiny object that we put a lot of attention on that probably is not the key thing that we need to put the attention on. That's a really good point. Are you of the belief system that it's important to test other types of cofactors for healthy thyroid production? And I'm thinking about selenium and magnesium and iron, et cetera, because I probably got trained in the time when we were like very focused on coat. You have to make sure your cofactors are, are fully optimized before you start medication And now I'm a little bit more, probably I would say a little more gray about that. Like, I think it's helpful to test, but it doesn't always sway the decision-making in terms of whether or not it's a supplement versus medication as a next step. I think the selenium issue is one of that gets a lot of discussion. What I've seen, right, through my bias is that most people aren't selenium deficient. Even though we say that the reason your T3 is low and your T4 is normal, it's because you're selenium deficient. You can't, you don't have the cofactor to convert to for the deiodinase to work. I don't think that's the case. I've, I've run too many selenium panels. Everybody seems like they're in the normal range or really close to it. If it was selenium deficiency, right? Then the same person wouldn't have a high reverse T3, right? Because all of the deiodinases, the enzymes that convert T4 to T3, T4 to reverse T3, break down T3, all these, the three enzymes that metabolize thyroid hormone all use selenium. And so if there is deficiency in selenium, you wouldn't see low T3 and high reverse T3 because there shouldn't be enough. Now, if you saw normal T4, high T4, low reverse T3 and low T3, now, yeah, I'd be running selenium just to check and see. So I don't put much time and effort into the tests at this point because I typically look at the labs and say, do I have a pattern? If I don't have that pattern, I'm not running it because it's, you know, you spend another 40, 50 bucks on a test. As far as iron, I look at iron on everybody. And I will tell you that my opinion, again, my bias is barely anybody's iron deficient. Okay. And I know there's somebody out there going, yeah, I am. I am. My doctor has me on iron. Unless you've got a massive bleed out, you're probably not iron deficient. Okay. Because we have great absorptive capacity, but poor ability to get rid of it, except if you're bleeding, right? We only slough off about a milligram of iron per day, but we can increase that amount that we absorb. So where's all the iron go? Well, the body has fantastic storage ability for iron in the body in something called ferritin. There's also another storage molecule, but ferritin is the one that most people will see if they potentially, if they get a blood draw done. And so what we see, there's two typical patterns we would see with somebody regarding iron. One is iron deficiency anemia, which used to be, and I think some people are still saying is the most common thing that happens to iron. I would argue that that is not the most common thing that iron causes that goes on, but it's anemia of chronic inflammation or chronic disease is the most common. And they could look very similar on a lab report for some people. Now, the big, easy distinguishing factor many times is that their serum iron, their iron saturation will be low. Those are things that maybe the doc will see. If they don't run a ferritin, it may look like anemia. If they run a ferritin as well and the ferritin's high, they probably don't have iron deficiency. If the ferritin is low though, and they have low iron and low iron saturation and high total iron binding capacity, you might think they're iron deficient. You go look at the red blood cell panel, see if there's an anemia pattern. And that 
early on, there may not be an anemia pattern, right? And early on, there may be an elevation of red blood cells to kind of compensate for it. But over time, we'll see the red blood cells start to diminish. But the task that you can distinguish all of this is pretty simple, inexpensive. It's called a soluble transferrin receptor test. And if you run that test, then we'll have a pretty good feel. Is this person truly iron deficient or are the cells loaded with iron and they just, they're in this anemia of inflammation or chronic disease pattern. So do you want me to explain that test or move on? No, I would like you to, because I'm not familiar with said test. So cells need to get iron into the cell because iron does so much stuff that helps run everything, runs your mitochondria, it runs almost all the systems in the cell need some iron, but iron's like a teenage boy. If it's not chaperoned, it's going to get itself in trouble, right? And I can say that because I'm still act like a teenage boy at times, right? So <laughs> iron gets escorted into the body. It then quickly gets escorted to a transport molecule called transferrin. That's like a little bus that drives it around the body. And then it gets escorted to the tissues. And if that iron isn't going to be used right away, then it goes into a holding storage unit inside the cell and that storage protein is called ferritin. And so it gets held in there until the cell needs it and the cell can pull it back out again. So if I'm a cell, how do I get the iron in the cell? Well, I put out these things called soluble transferrin receptors. It's like a door, like, you know, that you go through the mall, like the spinny door, right? So the iron and transferrin docks to this soluble transferrin receptor, it surrounds it, pulls it into the cell. And now I can get the iron into the cell and do something with it. And now I can release the transferrin. It goes back out into the bloodstream. So if the cells are anemic, then my soluble transferrin receptor is going to be really high because the cell needs a lot of iron. So it's putting all these receptors out, these catcher's mitts to catch the iron as it flies by. If I'm already loaded with iron, I'm not going to have a lot of transferrin, soluble transferrin receptors because I don't need any more iron, right? I'm already full. So that's the distinguishing test and nobody runs it. I've, so, I've never actually run it. That's why I was like, oh, I have to learn more about this test. That's really interesting. I'll have to kind of keep that in my mental Rolodex. Now, earlier you had talked about thyroid antibodies. <laughs> there are several different kinds. You had mentioned that TPO does have destructive potential, however, not nearly as significant as those created by activated thyroid cells and invading lymphocytes. This is an mm -hmm. important distinction. So don't freak out about your antibodies. And in your clinical experience, you know, there's there are typically ranges on allopathic lab values. You know, you get your report from your doctor, your nurse practitioner, whomever, and you're looking at the ranges. And sometimes it'll say less than nine is considered mm -hmm. to be negative. And then maybe someone's range comes back and it's 11, 12 versus 300, 400. I've seen, you know, TPO antibodies that have been very high. How do you designate? I got this question multiple times. How do you determine slash designate the significance of those antibodies in terms of their values? Like, do you consider to be a suboptimal amount of thyroid antibodies to be anything over what is considered to be quote unquote normal? What is your threshold with your patients? Yeah. So it's a great question. And I'd say the first thing that we always have to understand is not every lab measures these things the same way, right? So different labs have different ranges based on how they measure them. And so you might get a, and thyroglobin is a great example of this, 
even at Quest, depending on where you go, which lab they're going through, the range may be less than 115, or it might be less than one, right? So somebody might go, well, I'm 346. Okay, well, what was it measured on, right? Or uh, my value is two. Okay, but what was the range that, because what was the type of instrument it was measured on? So that makes a difference, the type of instrument. So it's not always as easy as my value is 25, this lab says it's less than nine. This lab says it should be less than 34. Which one's right? Well, how did they measure it differently? And so if they measured it on, an, on something that has a range of less than nine and you're 25, then that's positive finding, right? If it's measured on a unit that the range is less than 34, maybe the 25 is still fine based on how they measure it. So that's a little side, just so we're aware of that. Because there's many times that I've had patients say, oh my gosh, look at the value. I'm like, yeah, but look at the range. It's a different piece of equipment. So therefore, how they measure it, it's a little bit more sensitive. They can get a bigger reading, a bigger number. But my take when I look at it is, I assume that everybody who's got a thyroid gland problem has a level of thyroiditis. And I don't care really what their antibodies are per se. Okay. And we distinguish many times Hashimoto's, whether there's antibodies or not antibodies. And I think that's a waste of time discussion and a bunch of hogwash because the adaptive immune system has two primary parts, the Th1 side of the immune system and the Th2 side of the immune system. And when people are Th1 dominant, they really don't make a lot of antibodies. And so they could still have ongoing thyroiditis, lots of immune-driven damage, but not have antibodies. And so you think that there's no immune issue going on because I don't have any antibodies. Not true. The other thing that happens is some people are Th2 dominant which means they make a ton of antibodies. But if they're shifted to Th2 dominant, they may have a lot of antibodies. And if it was that the antibodies were look like little Pac-Man eating away the thyroid gland, then we might be more concerned. But if they're Th2 dominant and they have higher antibodies, it still may not mean that there's destruction going on at the moment, right? They're predictive antibodies. It means there could be damage or maybe there is their antibodies are being made because there's debris, but they're not actually eating away the gland. So what I'm always looking at is if I have antibodies, or let's say their antibodies are 200, right? We would consider that positive doesn't for TPO antibodies, doesn't matter what's going on. Is that good or not good? I don't know. Let's look at, is this a person who's on thyroid medication that requires thyroid medication? Well, then maybe that 200 is an issue or a problem. Is this a person who's got indicators of tissue hypothyroidism, chronic inflammation? Then maybe that number is a problem right? If the person doesn't have, there are no thyroid hormone, they make plenty of T4, they make plenty of T3, their reverse T3 is good, their ratios of free T3 to free T4 are good, there's no insulin resistance markers, their body weight is good. I don't know if I should be concerned about it at all. I don't have any indications that the prop, that it's an actual problem. Let's monitor it and let's not have a patient freaking out that, hey, I may have an, an autoimmune condition because we can see numbers fluctuate pretty wildly. If somebody's got really high numbers of antibodies, is that a problem? Same thing applies. It might be, maybe I need to look, uh, let me look at the rest of the values. Are they making thyroid hormone? Does everything seem to be working well? And if it is, everything seems to be working well, and it's really high like that, then they, maybe the next thing I do is go take a look at something like a lymphocyte map panel and find out, is this a person who's stuck in TH2 dominance? 
right? There may not be anything that's actually triggering the immune response at this point, but it's kind of stuck in that pattern. And maybe I need to help shift them out of that pattern and maybe I'll see the antibodies improve. So I don't know if I answered your question the way you wanted it to, but- No, 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 no. It's fascinating because I would imagine that I'm probably TH1 dominant because I've never had a positive antibody. And initially when I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism, I was told, oh, it's probably because you're mercury levels are high. That's probably what's offsetting your thyroid receptor. And that was the working hypothesis until a few years ago, someone said, oh, you definitely have Hashimoto's. You just don't have positive antibodies because you've been gluten-free and you've been this and you've been that. So how many people listening have assumed they don't, or their clinician assumes they don't have Hashimoto's because their antibodies are always negative. And yet, you know, if we know 90 to 95% of people with hypothyroidism have Hashimoto's, you have Hashimoto's. Yeah. And it, that's why I say it doesn't really matter. You have thyroiditis, mm-hmm. whether you want to call it Hashimoto's, you want to call it just, I just have primary, I, all that stuff is doesn't, it's not worth the argument, right? Mm-hmm. But if you look at the literature, thyroiditis starts off as a TH1 dis- dominant disorder. And it in time often shifts to a TH2 dominant disorder where we see the antibodies go up, but somebody can fluctuate back and forth. And when Dr. Bujdani came out with his lymphocyte map test, I said, here we go. I'll run a bunch of these tests on my clients. I took like 30 or 50 thyroid patients and we, I ran these because I wanted to see what's going on here. Maybe there's another way we can take a look at what's going on. And I would say 80 to 90% of the patients were TH1 dominant. Okay. So the vast majority of people are TH1 dominant and they have thyroiditis, right? And so the reason that becomes important is as sometimes we help people and we start to improve the imbalance in their immune system, they'll go from no antibodies. So they think they just have primary hypothyroidism, no Hashimoto's to now starting to show some positive antibodies. And they'll make the assumption that now they're worse because now they have these antibodies And you almost have to talk them back off the ledge and say, okay, wait a minute. If you were worse, would you be losing weight? If you were worse, would you be less insulin resistant? If you were worse, would you need less thyroid hormone to maintain normal values and have the no, you know, limited signs and symptoms? And so then once you talk them back off the ledge, you say, here's what's happening. You were stuck in this high TH1, no antibodies, really low TH2 response. And now that you're getting better, we're actually seeing kind of a balancing of the immune system and the antibodies are popping up, not because you're unhealthy, because those cells that should have been transferring this knowledge to the B cells can now start to do transfer that knowledge. And the B cells are like, oh, oh my gosh, okay. So if this happens again, we're going to make some memory B, you know, we're going to make some cells, we're going to have some antibodies and we kind of get this system in place. That happens a lot. And people think where, oh my gosh, am I getting worse? I've you actually even had one client whose physician said, well, working with that guy didn't help you because you went from no antibodies and now you've got antibodies. So now you've got Hashimoto's. I'm like, did he look at the rest of your health history? Did he look at the fact that you're down like 50 pounds? Did he look like, does he pay attention to the fact that you're almost off of your thyroid medication? I mean, let's interpret, not just read. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support 
to sustain energy, provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Consuming element on a daily basis is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health. And we know that by consuming proper amounts of electrolytes, it can contribute to quality sleep which is critical to all of my perimenopause and menopausal patients and clients. We know that magnesium increases a neurotransmitter called GABA that is known for producing calming effects. And consuming adequate levels of sodium can help you sleep through the night because low sodium levels increase cortisol and adrenaline. Additionally, if you are intermittent fasting, it's important to understand that when you fast, two things can dehydrate you. Number one, if your insulin levels remain low, it can signal to our kidneys to excrete more sodium or salt, a process called naturesis. And as glycogen or stored glucose is broken down, the water left over from the glycogen breakdown is urinated out. So if you want to take care of your health in one of my favorite ways, you can can consume element electrolytes. My favorite flavors are grapefruit and citrus, but there are many others to choose from. And if you go to drinkelement.com slash Cynthia, you can get a free sample pack to try them out on your own. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia for your free sample pack where you can try all of their flavors. I think it's important. I always say, check the patient. That was the resounding thing I learned as a nurse and as an NP that the labs can look terrible and the patient feels great. And that's what you go with. I think that we would be remiss if we didn't touch on nutrition and the role of molecular mimicry. mimicry. I think Mm -hmm. that I talk about this a lot with my patients, especially about gluten and dairy and soy and, and things like that. Do you have any hard and fast rules about you know, nutritional paradigms that you like to lean in for your thyroid patients. Um, I found an interesting study talking about um, the impact of low carb, low grains on thyroid health, but I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. I think it's a general rule. Maybe back up. We got too much food wars in the functional medicine industry, right? We have a lot of people coming up with their diet religion and something maybe that worked for them. So now it's going to work. It should work for everybody else. And a whole bunch of people just following things and telling stories because it's what they do. I think for anybody and everybody, I don't care what condition you have, 80% of your diet should be whole food, right? 20% of the time, you know, you're off the reservation, eating some process. Nobody's going to be perfect. I don't expect anybody to be perfect. But if you want to be healthy, regardless of what condition you have, eat more healthy whole food. Simple, right? Don't fall for the gluten-free sticker nonsense. I went into the grocery store the other day and there was gluten-free stickers on apples. Like, come on. Like, what have we gotten to that? This is just a sales pitch in point. But once I know somebody's got chronic health issues, whether it's thyroiditis or not, Then the next thing I may do, if I shift into maybe a whole food diet, then shift into an anti-inflammatory protocol. Why do I do that? Because it removes a lot of the stuff 
that could potentially trigger more immune reactivity. And so if we move, remove the grains, remove the dairy, remove the eggs, remove the soy, remove these, all these processed grains, regardless of what they are, I think what it does is it takes a lot of the potential problems out of the picture, right? And it kind of helps us kind of focus a little bit. Okay, we've taken all these things out and there's still some issues here. Now we got to look for some other things. Foods all have toxins. A lot of foods have toxins in them. We'd all agree that they do. You got a carnivore community that say all plants are bad because they have toxins. They do, but there's a beneficial effect of having some toxins in plants. It actually triggers some type of a stress response on our physiology that then our body can, the immune system can kick up, the defense mechanisms kick up, and then it goes away. And then the body recovers and now it's stronger. It's like lifting weights. Every time you eat some of that plant food, it's like lifting weights. You stress it and it gets stronger. You stress it and it gets stronger. If you don't eat, those plants, right? Now it's like not lifting weights. Well, lifting weights could be bad for you. Well, if you do it with bad form, bad technique, too heavy, yes, anything could be bad for you. But we've got people saying that all plants are bad because they've got toxins and plants are designed to have toxins and it's hugely beneficial for your health and well-being. But good thing to do, I think, for a lot of people who are struggling with issues is more of that anti-inflammatory protocol initially because as you said, some of these proteins have very similar structure when we break them down to the peptide level. And it's often not the protein itself, but the peptide structure that creates a problem. So for the listener, when you eat a food, a food's got protein, almost everything's got protein in it. And these are big, long things made out of amino acids. So these are individual things called amino acids linked together. And if you get like 10 or 15 of them, that 10 or 15 segments group is called a peptide. And then we put a bunch of these peptides together and we get a protein. Now, the proteins all look a little bit different, but when I start to break the protein down into these individual peptides, those the amino acid sequence within those peptides could look very similar from protein to protein. So if I reactive to the peptides in wheat, and let's say there's 10 amino acids in that peptide and seven of them are very similar to maybe a dairy protein that's been broken down. And now I see the dairy peptide and six of the amino acids are the same as the seven in this wheat protide. Now the body may go, you know what? That's close enough. I'm going to react to it. And the best, and the analogy, it's not probably a good analogy, but the analogy I use for my clients regarding molecular mimicry and the potential problem is if you were dating identical twins, right? If your husband had an identical twin and you went out to you know, at any given day, if they dress the same, you would know the difference between your husband and the twin, right? You'd be like, oh, easy to tell. Like I may walk up and go, they look exactly the same, but you go, so easy to tell the difference. But let's say one night you go out, you go down to Jersey Shore, you go out into a bar, you drank too much. There's no, it's so dark in there. It's crowded. You had too much to drink. They decided they were going to, for fun, they were going to dress identical, same hat, same shirt, same everything. And both of them went into the bathroom and one of them came out and you kissed the wrong one. Is it really your fault? Right. And that's how the immune system can be when there's chaos, when it's compromised, when it's fighting a lot of things, when there is reduced function and chaos going on, the immune system may look at that and go, you know what? that's pretty close to the thing that I'm supposed to be going after. So I'm going to go after it. And so that's why we want to remove the grains and the rice and the dairy and all these things that have similar potential structures that may cross react with something like gluten, because we want to get those things out because it's not that all these foods are bad. 
But when the immune system finds one thing as a problem and the immune system's compromised, it might start to react to these other things just because they're so similar in this kind of chaos situation. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I think it's a really nice explanation, you know, with the analogy of twins for people to understand how easily that can happen, that they think of whatever it's gluten or grains or dairy, et cetera, that they're wondering why they're having some degree of inflammation. There was one study that I looked at that specifically looked at low carb, low grains, and it reduced antibodies by 40%, by 5%, BMI went down by 4%. So whether or not it's vis-a-vis because someone's a little insulin resistant and they lower their carbohydrate intake. I mean, there's so many different factors that could impact that, but just understanding that nutrition is important. Bioindividuality is certainly important. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't at least address one more question that you know followers had. In terms of supplementation, we kind of touched on iodine, obviously controversial. We touched on the cofactors piece. Are there any particular supplements that you have found as a generalization that have been helpful? I read a little bit about black cumin being particularly helpful. I know selenium can be anti-inflammatory for the thyroid. Are there other things that you look at? And again, we're talking about generalities, nothing specific, but that you have seen benefit in patients in terms of quieting inflammation, maybe giving them a little bit more energy that have turned out to be helpful. Yeah, like I'm a big fan of sulforaphane and I know this can rankle some feathers, right? Because people are like, well, it could be goitrogenic, right? If you eat any of these kind of brassica things, it can create problems with more thyroiditis. That has proven to not be true in the human population based on the most current research. So you don't have to worry about that. Two, we have all these things that we can take to help with inflammation, quercetin, turmeric, all kinds of different things. But sulforaphane, is the best food stimulator of something called your NRF2 pathway. And your NRF2 pathway is your body's master anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and detoxifying gene, okay? So it turns on 200 enzymes when it's stimulated. In acute inflammation, the body turns it on and it starts doing its job to allow the inflammation to go on and then calming the whole thing back down. The problem is in chronic inflammation, something called NF-kappa B blocks, winds up not initially it turns it on and then it blocks its function. So now we turn off the anti-inflammatory antioxidant detoxifying system. So sulforaphane, highly absorbable, gets to the brain within 15 minutes of taking it. And it's hard for it to be toxic because its half-life is 24 hours. So it's gone. So I like that as a tool to help reduce the inflammatory mechanism. I work with a company called US Enzymes Master Supplements. I was trying to put together a bile formula for them and I ran across sulforaphane and that diverted the whole thing. And we wound up just producing a sulforaphane supplement called sulforazyme. One of the really amazing things as more and more physicians started using it is the autistic community kind of picked this up. They were working on this. Some of the physicians were giving this stuff to their kids and they're like, is it possible for these kids to go from nonverbal to verbal? in like a really short period of time with just taking this stuff. And there's some really awesome research out of NIH that's been done on sulforaphane, but they didn't, I haven't seen a lot from NIH and in the autistic community, but is it a potential thing that taking that 
sulforaphane could have an impact like that on the brain. Yeah. If it only takes 15 minutes from the time you eat it to get it to the brain, and it's going to be anti-inflammatory and antioxidant supporting, absolutely. It could have an impact. So I really like that. It's, this is going to sound weird, but one of the things I think is really impactful for most people is starting with a digestive enzyme. Okay. And the reason I say that is, is because if you have a stress response going on in your physiology. You're, remember, we talked about shifting from manufacturing to cell defense. Well, if I shift out of manufacturing, I shift out of making a lot of stomach acid, digestive enzymes, and that piece of it. So now I eat food, I bring it into the system, I don't have great digestive capacity. Now I don't break those proteins down into amino acids. I'm breaking them down into peptides. And now those peptides can cross a leaky barrier and trigger reactivity. And that could be foods that are really healthy that I eat every day. That can be a process that occurs. So I love people taking a digestive enzyme, especially when I do a test and confirm it. But if they've got digestive issues, I may be talking to them about stomach acid production, maybe giving some betaine HCL, some digestive bitters, some bile. But as a base, if they've got digestive stuff based on the history, I always tell people, before you add the multivitamin, probably the digestive enzyme is probably a better place to start. So that's a biggie for me. So the sulforaphane, the digestive enzyme, say what you want about magnesium and how we test it. I don't think we have a great way to test it, but I think a lot of people are probably more magnesium deficient than we are aware of. So I like magnesium as a regular supplement. And then there's a bunch of other stuff, but what I recommend directly from an inflammatory standpoint might differ based on what I saw on a blood panel. Is it fibrinogen? Is it uric acid? Like what are the things? And then I might fine tune that a little bit, but from just an overall inflammatory standpoint, I really like taking a look at trying to hit with a limited amount of stuff. What can I do that's going to have the biggest impact on the system? I really like sulforaphane. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Eric, as always, this is an incredible conversation. Let my followers know how to purchase your book, The Thyroid Debacle. It's an excellent resource, as well as catch you on Instagram and uh, you know participate in your podcast, for which I've been a, the honor of being a guest on twice myself. Yeah. Now I have to get you back on as a third timer. I don't think I've had a third third timer on now. I feel guilty not having you on yet, but yeah. So I have a podcast called Thyroid Answers Podcast. It comes out about twice a month. I've got a um, videos. I do Thursdays. I try to do these Thyroid Thursday videos, which is a bit educational. I, I don't do a lot of the kind of here's the fun things, you know, four things to do. I really try to be educational. Some people give me a hard time about it. Other people enjoy it. But I, I, what, I, what my goal is with my, a lot of my posts is to try and help you understand the mechanism. Like, why does this happen versus, hey, here's the three things to take. I'd rather have you understand it so that way you can think through a process. So that's the goal of those Thyroid Thursdays. They're a little bit longer, 10 minutes. I have the book out. It's called the Thyroid Debacle, and that's available at Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Balboa Press. You can go online and order it. What else is out there? I think that's it. And I'm on Instagram, I guess. Yeah, Instagram. I'm not on TikTok or any of that. I think I'm on Facebook by default, but <laughs> I think I'm on Instagram and that's where I do kind of most of my posting. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure as always, Eric. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's always a great conversation, whether I'm leading the discussion with uh, asking you questions or you're asking the questions. Awesome. Have a great day. You too. Take care. 
If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.